We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Well, good afternoon. There was a lovely request last week to begin uh, our sessions with a uh, prayer for learning, the blessing for learning. Uh, if we end up with a uh, with a minion uh, by the end, we could end also with. Uh, um, with a, a rabbi's kaddish um, or some other, uh, clo- if, if we don't have a minion, we can we can maybe add with a with a different closing prayer. I'll have to think about what one is, <clears throat> what would be appropriate uh, in the absence of doing a kaddish. But maybe we can. Good afternoon, Josephine. Uh, but uh, we could do something extemporaneously too. Uh, but anyway, the uh, blessing before studying Torah. Some of you know, you can join with me. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Praised are you, Adonai our God, sovereign of space and time, uh, who has sanctified us with divine commandments and has commanded us <coughs> to uh, busy ourselves in words of Torah. Um, okay. So we are uh, in uh, chapter 15 of Genesis Rabbah, which corresponds to uh, uh, Genesis uh, chapter two, uh, verse eight is where we're going to is where we've been we, we've been studying. Uh, the verse that we're looking at, and if you recall from last week, uh, I noted that uh, really all midrash uh, extends from a biblical verse, um, and and very often on uh, close readings of biblical verses um, that are not. Uh, if you kind of get the internal logic of uh, uh, of rabbinic literature, um, are not you know so uh, outlandish and fanciful as you might imagine. Uh, very often they are um, uh, based on uh, very close readings of um, of biblical text uh, and uh, an attempt to uh, harmonize. Or, or at least compare and contrast those texts with with, uh, with, with similar kinds of passages elsewhere in the Bible, uh, and the way of of uh, according to my father-in-law uh, Rabbi Neil Rose of evaluating whether a midrash you know works or doesn't is is effective or not is whether you can plug it back into the verse and have the verse make more sense than it did before the before you uh, read the midrash um so just to keep in mind the verse we're looking at is uh, at the very front of your packet um we're, we're going to skip past that in a moment but just to reorient ourselves to the verse that we're looking at uh is uh, um vita adonai elohim gan be'eden mikedem Vayasem sham et ha'adam asher yatsar. So uh, uh, the Lord God, um, Adonai Elohim, as we spent a little bit of time last week talking about uh, why the, the Bible uses both of those divine names in this instance. Um, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east and placed there the man whom God had formed. We spent last time looking at the uh, first midrash of this chapter, which uh, which which deals with with two things. One, 
uh, about the why God here is referred to in that kind of peculiar way, uh, and the other about the uh, about the garden that God planted, uh, uh, which implies that the that the garden already existed and was just kind of uh, uprooted and, and planted in a different place, or at least it was partially formed that God put in a different place. Uh, we also noted there uh, the uh, connection the midrash draws between. Uh, the garden uh, and the uh, holy temple in Jerusalem, uh, drawing a connection, uh, at least a parallel, uh, but maybe a direct link between uh, the the trees in the Garden of Eden uh, and the and the temple. So, at the very least, the in the rabbinic imagination, the temple in Jerusalem uh, was meant to reflect and embody the Garden of Eden uh, that had previously been been lost to humanity and restore it uh, in a sense uh, a place that you know is in this you know intimacy with with God in which humans can can encounter God um, so at the very least is a representation of it but may also depending on how you look at that midrash uh, uh, may also be uh, in actuality a direct descendant of the trees that uh, and, and materials that existed in the Garden of Eden. We're not going to focus so much on that uh, anymore. We're going to move on a bit to the next page, uh, which uh, deals more with this question, uh, Gan Be'eden, a garden in Eden. Now, normally in, uh, in kind of popular parlance, you know, how do you usually refer to this particular geographical location? Garden of Eden, right? Usually you hear that's what people say. So uh, it's interesting to note that that's not what the Torah says here. It's Gan Be'eden, with the Bet meaning in. Uh, and so um, uh, that uh, um, uh, uh, seems to imply things about the geography and the topography of this garden. So that's what the Midrash is going to discuss now. So I'm going to uh, uh, call, uh, call on uh, somebody to read. Once again, if you don't want to read, feel free to pass and we'll move on to the next person. That's fine. And also, as we read, uh, feel free to uh, interject with your, with your thoughts and, and comments and, and questions. So um, what we'll probably try to do, um, well, I might interrupt, but yeah. Yes. More or less. I mean, I think that, that, that you, both literally and figuratively, that the rest of that gets kind of in the weeds. Um, so I thought that, uh, that, that we would uh, move on a little bit uh, to, a new, uh, to a new midrash, uh, especially for the, for the benefit of people who may not have been here for the conversation last week, um, so that we don't have to retread the grounds too much. Um, but Nancy, would you be willing to read? I'm going to pass. You're going to pass. Would you be willing to read? Sure. Um, I'm Margaret, by the way. In Hi. Case you forgot. Thank you for reminding. Yes, I know we have. Thank you for reminding me your name, though. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Margaret, would you be willing to read? So start. Um, no, no, no. Just in English. So just uh, just as a reminder, this edition uh, uh, tries to uh, delineate when it is trying to give a more uh, direct translation of the Hebrew words and where it adds in some English words that help the flow in translation. So the bold uh, are, is the direct Hebrew translation or the direct translation from Hebrew. The non-bold are you know, additional words that help for, for flow um, and for understanding. And then things that are in italics are biblical verses. Okay. 
Um, okay, so. Um, Yeah, so the, the R there is an, an abbreviation for rabbi. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so you can start there. Yeah. Um, says, the garden is larger than Eden. As it states, it was envied by all the trees of Eden that were in God's garden. Oh, sorry, can you just, just go up one uh, line before that to Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi? Sure. Well, rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yoz debated this matter. Rabbi Yehuda says, the garden is larger than Eden. It was envied by all the trees of Eden that were in God's garden. And it states further, were you in Eden of the garden of God? And our Yos says, Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi. says, Eden is larger than the garden, as it states, Hashem, God, planted a garden in Eden. Okay. Two rabbis, two opinions on the geography of the garden of Eden. What are the two opinions, just so we're... How does this differ from Talmud? Uh, it's very similar to Talmud. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's very similar. I mean, Talmud, I mean these were written, <clears throat> these texts were compiled around the same time as the Babylonian Talmud by the same rabbis in more or less the same uh, place. Uh, there is, right, that a lot of the rabbis who appear in the Midrash also appear in the Talmud. There's, you know, a lot of cross-pollination. Um, they're not, they're, they're really not in a lot of ways independent works. They're, they're, they're complementary works. Uh, m- much of the material that's in uh, Genesis Rabbah and other Midrashic collections that were contemporaneous um, end up in the Talmud. Um, the things are debated similar to ways that they're debated in the Talmud. Um, so yeah, uh, it's just the Talmud as a, as a general rule focuses on things that have to do with legal debates. Uh, sometimes they veer off into kind of tangential uh, arguments about scriptural verses that are not that don't seem to be connected to the legal debate that's at hand, but generally speaking, they're they're uh, they're legal debates. So these aren't these aren't legal debates. These are uh, textual debate, you know, textual interpretive debates. So it's another set of writings separate from the Tosafot and the Brayton and the Talmud itself. It's just another body of, of uh, Jewish literature. Correct. Correct. So the uh, the the the, the to, the Toseftot and the Brightot are actually earlier texts. Those are um, what we call Tanaitic texts. The Tanaitic period um, it goes from roughly 200 before the Common Era to 200 of the Common Era, which is uh, uh, when the Mishnah was completed, give or take. Um, and that those texts form the form the core of of Talmud. Uh, the rest of Talmud, which are Debates about about the Mishnah, which bring in some of those other kinds of texts, Tosef, Tot, Bright, Tot, etc., um, uh, is uh, is is the product of a uh, later stage of rabbinic development that we call the Amoraic period, which was roughly from 200 uh, uh, of the Common Era to about 500 uh, of the Common Era, or 600 of the Common Era, um, and so the the uh, so. Uh, Genesis Rabbah was, was uh, according to most theories, was, was uh, at, redacted around the same time as the Babylonian Talmud, which was completed by about 600. Yeah. So what, what are the, okay, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi, these are actually two of the most uh, common disputants uh, in the Talmud. Uh, they, the, um, one of the things that, you, that those of you who are in uh, Rabbi Creditor's Talmud class have probably learned is that a lot of uh, rabbis have what are called a bar plukta. 
which means uh, like their chief rival, their chief disputant, you know, Bar Plugta. Um, it's, it's Aramaic, um, so what Hebrew would be uh, Ben... Um, ben Haflaga, maybe, or something like that. It's like Lefaleg uh, 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 is like uh, to divide. Um, so uh, so uh, sometimes in um, rabbinic literature, you'll encounter a phrase called Dor uh, Haflaga, which means the, the uh, generation of the divide. Uh, and that refers to the generation that lived in the time of the Tower of Babel. Uh, they build this tower and they all get kind of scattered around, right? So they're like separate from each other, right? So that's what a bar plugta is, is somebody that you're kind of like opposing. You know, you're, you're separate. You're, you have difference of opinion, right? And so that's very common in, in the Talmud, as you've seen, is that there are like uh, pairs of rabbis that frequently appear Hillel and Shammai are the most famous ones, right? Rabbi Yehud and Rabbi Yossi are also uh, uh, among them. Um, trying to think of other... Uh, um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, uh, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, maybe you've seen in the Talmud, are also uh, famous ones. Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Yossi are Tanaitic rabbis. They lived um, uh, in around the, around the first century uh, of the common era. They were... They were, they were Probably a little bit later than the time of Jesus, a few de- decades after the time of Jesus. No, different Rabbi Yehuda. Um, this is Rabbi Yehuda Ben. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's not Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Um, He's almost always referred to as Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, or sometimes, or Rabbi. Yehuda, he's also very commonly referred to as just. Rebbe or Rabbi uh, in, in, in the Mishnah or in, in Tanaitic literature. Um, uh, like the rabbi par excellence because he's the one who compiled the Mishnah. So it's not this Rabbi Yehuda. And Rabbi Yossi here is uh, Rabbi Yossi. He's normally called Rabbi Yossi Haglili, Rabbi Yossi the Galilean, probably because he came from the Galilee. Um, it would be pretty, pretty ironic if he was called that, but didn't come from the Galilee. Um, so, okay. All right. So, um, we have Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi, and they are debating about the meaning of this verse. What's their debate? Which is bigger, the, the garden? I mean, is the garden in, in Eden, like, surrounding the garden, or vice versa? Good. Okay. So, uh, is, right. Which is bigger, the garden or Eden? Rec- you know, recognizing that these seem to be two distinct geographic locations, right? What? Right. So, so I was going to say, which one says which? So, uh, so Rabbi Yossi says, which is bigger? Eden is bigger. Eden is bigger than the garden. That, but to me at least, I don't know. That that sort of makes sense <coughs> with the like literal reading of the verse. It's a garden in Eden, which implies that the the Eden is a bigger geographical area than the garden. I wanted, uh, and then Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda. What does Rabbi Yehuda say? He says the opposite. He says which is bigger? The garden, the garden is bigger. Okay, we're going to see what that would, how that would look like, how how, how we can envision that. But I wanted to share with you uh, something that I thought was really interesting. From, um, uh, from modern biblical uh, criticism about uh, the Garden of Eden uh, that I think uh, um, uh, uh, adds dimension to this conversation. Uh, so this is the JPS Torah Commentary, uh, Genesis uh, edition, uh, which is edited by uh, Nahum Sarna. He says, uh, man's first domicile is a garden planted by God. Uh, 
the narrative is very sparing of detail about its nature and function. Other biblical references indicate that a more expansive, popular story about man's first home once circulated widely in Israel. A phrase like the Garden of the Lord, as well as the figurative use of Eden or Garden of Eden as symbols of luscious vegetation, suggests a background not given here. Ezekiel 28, 13 and 31, which are actually uh, referenced, uh, or, or one of the things that are referenced here, testify to the one-time existence of a tale about a wondrous garden of God, rich in a large variety of precious stones, beautifully wrought gold, and an assortment of trees. Ancient Near Eastern literature provides no parallel to our Eden narrative as a whole, but there are some suggestions of certain aspects of the biblical Eden. The Sumerian myth about Enki and Ninhursag tells of an idyllic island of Dilmun, now almost certainly identified with the modern island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. It is a pure, clean, and bright land in which all nature is at peace, where beasts of prey and tame cattle live together in mutual amity. Sickness and old age are unknown. The Gilgamesh epic, um, which uh, is uh, an ancient Babylonian uh, uh, text that predates the Bible by uh, many centuries, and has parallels to the Bible in in a number of ways, Uh, the Gilgamesh epic likewise knows of a garden of jewels. It is significant that our Genesis account omits all mythological details, does not even employ the phrase garden of God, and places gold and jewels in a natural setting. So we're going to see gold and jewels a little bit later. Um, So I I thought that was sort of an interesting depth that, you know, that that the Eden they may be referring to may be an island in the Persian Gulf. Um, That's right. That's right. We do. We do. I don't think she would describe it that way. Well, she's on a boat. Yeah. But then again, you know, he says to them to the east. Yeah. Inside of the garden, to the east of the garden, but inside the garden. Sorry, so, so you're... It says, here, you says to the east, right? So when it says to the east, you know, it says um, inside the garden, and then to the east of the garden, or inside the garden, or what? Well, it, it doesn't say to the east of what. Exactly. <laughs> right, so, and then we're actually going to look at that passage. Uh, that, there's a midrash on, on that, that phrase, mikerem, uh, to the east. But it's, uh, it's unclear what that's referring to, you know. Um, Presumably, you know, the, the, the author of, you know, the, the, the Torah um, is kind of written, you know, for people living in the land of Israel, right? So presumably when it says to the east, it means to the east of where we are situated right now, um, if, that's, if that's indeed what Miketa means. Um, so, you know, if we want to take like this, you know, the, the Occam's razor approach, like the simplest explanation is probably the correct one, right? Then it probably means somewhere east of the land, somewhere east of the land of Israel. But that could be the Persian Gulf, you know? I mean, that's, uh, that's to the east, isn't it, of the land of Israel? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Which one? The Persian Gulf. Yeah, it's east, but you have to go through the desert, no? Well, yeah, but, but it is to the east. <laughs> right. it, say, it doesn't say how far to the east. It doesn't say how far to the east, but... Um, it gets worse, I guess. Yeah. Israel was fine, but to the east, I mean, just this. Unless you go north of Babylonia. Right. Um, I can make a plug um, of Armenian extraction, and Armenians always say that the Garden of is in Armenia. So that's the tigers in the Euphrates. Yeah. So where, yeah, so... 
Well, so what's interesting is that the and we haven't gotten there yet, but the um, the 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 text situates it uh, uh, between uh, or around four different rivers, among which are the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, but not limited to the Tigris and Euphrates. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, okay. All right. So. Uh, so that's where we are, okay? And so uh, Rabbi Yehuda uh, uh, cites two verses from uh, Ezekiel uh, to support his point, um, right? That the garden is larger than Eden. Um, uh, uh, um, and then uh, Rabbi Yossi uh, cites uh, one verse to prove his point, that Eden is larger than the garden. Um, all right. Uh, will you continue? Yeah. The Midrash presents another verse that Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yoz will interpret in light of their respective opinions. And it is written, a river issues from Eden to water the garden. According to the opinion of Rabbi Yose, who holds that Eden is larger than the garden and encircles it, the verse can be understood in light of the principle from the drainage of rainwater on a base core, base, a base core, a bait core, yeah. Um, an area of a Tarkov drains, and according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, that the garden is larger than Eden and encircles it, the verse simply depicts the normal method of watering. Keep going. Eden is essentially like a spring in that it is placed inside the garden. And from there, the, and from there, waters the entire garden. Okay. All right. Let's just just pause there for a second. Okay. So we're getting. We're, we, I don't want to get too bogged down in uh, ancient units of measurement and uh, and and uh, agriculture. Uh, but just look at note twenty three, which tries to explain um, uh, Rabbi Yossi's opinion. Okay. Um, uh, a bait core is the area of land needed for planting a core of barley seeds. One core <laughs> equals 180 kavs. Um, the word tarkav is a contraction of tray, two, and, ka- and, and kav, one kav. A tarkav is thus three kavs, a ratio of 60 to 1. The principle men- mentioned by the Midrash states that the drainage of rainwater that falls in the area of a bait core, which is 180 kavs, um, so if you want, you know, if it's easier to kind of convert these to, um, to like, uh, modern units, uh, instead of cov, like think of a cov as like an acre, right? So 180 acres, say, um, even though that's probably way bigger than the range, but just like, so you're not, you know, so you just, so you don't have the like Aramaic terminology in your head, maybe easier to wrap your head around, right? So, um, the uh, rainwater that falls in the area of a, a bait core, which is 180 acres, suffices to water the area of land needed for planting three. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, actually, actually, in acres is probably not right. So it's like probably like uh, uh, it's a unit of, um, of volume. Um, so like liters, maybe I don't know, um, liters of barley seeds. No, I don't do math. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I have a master's degree. This, mean, this, means, this means that the drainage of any area suffices to provide water for an area 160th its size. Uh, this formula provides an explanation of our verse. A river issues from Eden to water the garden. This river is the outflowing drainage from, from the rainfall in Eden, and it suffices to water the garden, which, based 
on the above must be no more than one sixtieth the size of Eden. The verse thus confirms with conforms with Rabbi Yossi's view that Eden is larger than the garden. In other words, basically he's saying that uh, that this that the um, uh, that the that the verse that says a river issues from Eden to water the garden um, uh, is that um, is that the the drainage of rainwater uh, um, from you know uh, of, uh, uh, from rivers um, uh, you know is only sufficient to water something one sixtieth the size of of the um, uh, of the original volume of water uh, and so therefore. The garden must have been once no more than one sixtieth the size of uh, of the entire uh, uh, geographical area, more or less, right? So he's he's uh, he's drawing a, uh, uh, a that mathematical argument from this verse that says a uh, river issues forth from Eden to water the garden. Okay, and Rabbi Yehuda, who says that the garden is larger than Eden and circles it. Um, says would look at that same verse of uh, of a river issuing from Eden to water the garden, and he says that Eden is kind of like a, a spring, uh, and so the garden kind of encircles it. The water issues forth from the middle and spreads out and ends up watering the garden that's around it. Um, <clears throat> okay, uh, Norman, you want to? Uh, read the Midrash returns to the original dispute. <clears throat> the Midrash returns to the original dispute between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yosef regarding whether Eden or the Garden is larger. Although each Tana brought scriptural support for his position, the Midrash notes an imbalance in their respective proofs. Okay, just pause it for a second. Um, I mentioned that terminology before. The the Mishnah and Tosefta and Breitot, I, I call them Tanaitic literature because they were written by a group of rabbis who were known as as the Tanaim, singular Tana, um, and uh, Talmud Gemara um, uh, is uh, um, uh, um, is the product of a group of rabbis known as Amoraim. I call it Amoraic literature. Uh, the singular of that is Amora. So a rabbi that lives from you know, 200 to 600 CE is commonly known in rabbinic literature as an Amora. And the, a rabbi who lives between 200 BCE and 200 CE is known as a Tana. So here it's saying these two rabbis, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, are are uh, are are uh, two tanas, um, okay? So they so all right. They're they're each justifying their positions, bringing a proof from scripture, um, but there may be an imbalance uh, in their respective proofs. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. But Rabbi Yehuda has two supporting verses, while Rabbi Yossi has only one verse. So who prevails? Right. <laughs> Right. Um, if you have, so I mean, uh, shall, shall we not therefore say that Rabbi Yehuda's opinion that the garden is larger prevails? Rabbi Khanin of Kippori said, "The Holy One, blessed be He, enlightened Rabbi Yosi, and he subsequently found another verse that tilts the balance toward him. And which verse is this? He will make his, her wilderness like Eden, and her wasteland like the garden of Hashem, like a garden of Hashem." Okay, so what? So, so walk me through uh, the uh, um, the sort of like uh, legalistic uh, uh, issue here. 
Well, Rabbi Yehuda had two supporting verses and Yossi had only one until Rabbi Hanin of Tzipori found the second one for Yossi. And he said that that tipped the balance toward Yossi. Good. Okay. Huh? Not just equal. That's right. Tip the balance. Exactly. Well, right. So, 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 listen. If you have if you have two verse, two proof texts against one proof text, it seems like the two proof text should win out over the one proof text, even if the one proof text argument is a is a stronger logical argument. But once you have two proof texts uh, for the for the other argument, then you say, okay, it's two versus two. So, which is the stronger argument? Right and um, and so at least the midrash here thinks that Rabbi Yossi's argument is the stronger argument, and God supports the uh, the the claim that Rabbi Yossi's argument is a stronger argument. Yeah, well, that's a question. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Rabbi Hanan found this other verse, and he subsequently found another verse that tilts the balance toward him. Who says so? Right. Who says it tilts the balance? Uh, right, so here, let's look carefully what Rabbi Hanin says. Rabbi Hanin doesn't find the other verse. Rabbi Hanin says that God uh, uh, showed Rabbi Yossi, right, gave prophecy to Rabbi Yossi to, to say, you know, like, there's, there's another verse that you, that, you haven't, that you didn't find yet, but it supports you pretty well. And once you find it, it's going to tip the scales in your favor. Um, so according to Rabbi Hanin, Okay, this is all reported secondhand, right? According to Rabbi Hanan, God gave Rabbi Yossi uh, insight into finding another supporting verse, and because of that, according to Rabbi Hanan, that tips the scales in Rabbi Yossi's favor. But the question is, you know, do you agree with Rabbi Hanan? I mean, it's a very good question. You have to take, you either take Rabbi Hanin on, on faith or you don't. <laughs> well, the, looking at the footnote, yeah. um, it says wilderness is larger than a wasteland. Uh-huh. The, 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 the phrase wasteland like a garden of Hashem doesn't really sound very good to me. That's sort of like a negative connotation of the smaller space. Am I misreading? That? No, no, you're 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 reading it, right? So so that you're pointing to what the what the midrashic move would be here, right? It's saying right it refers to the wasteland as a garden of Hashem and the uh, wilderness as Aden. Right and if right, which which of those two things is uh, is is smaller according to according to the footnote here and and uh, um, it's probably if we if we were to look uh, at the sort of context of Isaiah, um, my guess is that that would probably bear out um, that a wasteland is smaller than a wilderness and so therefore you know if you kind of make this into a uh, um, an, an SAT analogy right um, uh, uh, wilderness uh, is to wasteland as Eden is to garden. Right? So if wilderness is bigger, that's like Eden. And if wasteland is like garden, uh, then garden is smaller. Do they use wasteland um, to indicate what was there before God put everything in? Well, we can look at the actual verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 51. 
So this is this is cert- most certainly a, uh, a a prophecy of of destruction um, from Isaiah. Um, so let's see. Okay. Um, uh, here's what Isaiah says. Uh, Listen to me, you who pursue justice, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock you were hewn from, to the quarry you were dug from. Look back to Abraham your father and to Sarah who brought you forth. For he was only one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. Truly the Lord has comforted Zion, comforted all her ruins. He has made her wilderness like Eden. I'm sorry, not a prophecy of destruction, a prophecy of restoration. He has made uh, her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of, of God, uh, of, of the Lord. It actually flips those terms as they're translated here. Um, it translates uh, uh, Midbar as wilderness and Arava as desert. That's actually the opposite of, in this translation, how it translates it here. Um, so you got to like focus on the Hebrew terms, which is Midbar and Arava. Um, and uh, according to this, a Midbar is bigger than an Arava. Um, so, and Arava mean both wasteland and desert? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, both they're 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 I mean, that's uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. I mean, that's sort of how biblical poetry works. They're, it's meant to be synonymous, right? So, like the biblical poetry will will often, you know, state you know one thing and then say basically the same thing in the next line as sort of emphasis of it with with like with 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 synonyms in you know here. So. Uh, her wilderness is like Eden. Her desert is like the Garden of God, right? You basically said the same thing twice, I think, is the, the thrust of the biblical poetry. But Midrash doesn't want to read it that way because Midrash believes that the, that the Bible only uses uh, um, uh, so many, uh, only the words that it needs to use get, to get its message across. So if it says something twice, it means two different things by it, right? That's not actually how biblical poetry works, but it's how the, it's how the rabbis wanted to read the the. Uh, the Bible. So in this case, it's saying, you know, yes, okay, Arava and Mibar might be synonyms, but like with every synonym, there's slightly different meanings and connotations to each thing, right? So, um, so in so what how uh, uh, how the midrash here interprets it is that uh, is that a Midbar uh, is the is the bigger geographical area, and an Arava is a smaller one. Now. If you uh, if you've if you've been to Israel, um, uh, this is actually kind of true um, that there is um, an area of the southern part of Israel called the Arava, um, uh, which is um, which is sort of like uh, um, on the way down to Eilat. Um, you generally drive through it, um, but it's part of a larger geographical area that is called the Negev Desert, right? And so. So geographically, there's I think there's there's support for that view I would say. Um, um, so anyway, uh, just to finish the the verse. Uh, so uh, gladness and joy shall abide there. Thanksgiving and the sound of music. Right. So, uh, so this is a prophecy of restoration by Isaiah um, that you know the things that were destroyed will be rebuilt. Right. Um, um, so to answer your question, Harry, uh, contextually, you know, it's, it's what it's saying about the, the Arava, the connection between Arava and the garden um, is not that the garden is like an Arava, uh, but that 
uh, that when, you know, when God restores the fortunes of Israel, uh, God will make what had become an Arava or a Midbar into something that is like Eden, or is like the Garden of Eden. Um, which is just an, an, another, I think, interesting parallel, as we talked about last week, that last week the, um, uh, the, the Midrash draws a connection between uh, this garden in Eden and the temple in Jerusalem. And here we have another connection between, uh, between uh, the Garden of Eden and, uh, and the temple in Jerusalem, right? What's that connection? The connection is that, you know, Isaiah is prophesying after the destruction of the first temple uh, and about the restoration of uh, the exiles and the rebuilding of a second temple, right? And so, so he's, he's saying, he's drawing, I think, that, or the Midrash, at least, is, is, is uh, making that, that connection, that in some way, um, the, the, the uh, rebuilding and establishment of, uh, of a temple in Jerusalem is, is at least representative of, uh, of the Garden of Eden. Um, thoughts, questions, comments on this midrash before we go on to the next? <clears throat> okay, all right. So, just, you know, so you have, like, something interesting to talk about at your cocktail parties. Um, uh, when people talk about the Garden of Eden, you could say, actually, no, it's a garden in Eden. Eden was the larger area. According to Rabbi Yossi, at least, the garden is a place inside a smaller, uh, smaller portion of land inside uh, the larger geographical area of Eden. It's a garden in Eden. Okay. All right. Now uh, we're coming to uh, uh, Miketem, uh, uh, to the east. Uh, okay. Um, I'm so sorry. Remind me your name. Vicky, thank you. Vicky, will you uh, read? We have heretofore translated Mikadam. Mm-hmm. Mikadam, yeah. Um, as to or in the east. The Midrash, however, expounds it differently as referring not to space, but to time. Rabbi Shmuel. That's, that's sort of, I just want to pause there to say that, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, what 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 Einstein uh, suggested is that those are those are actually the same thing. Um, so um, uh, uh, you know, I don't get too like cosmological about this, uh, and but that may be a dimension of the conversation. Is maybe it's talking about both space and time. Uh, but anyway, it, it, you know, the 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 contextual close reading of it seems to be about space, right? To the, you know, again a geographical pointing, but maybe it's not. Maybe kedem can also mean before. Right, so Mikadam would be from before. It can't right. So we right, we say that every Shabbat, right? Chadesh Yamenu Kekedam. Right? May you uh, re- renew our days as of old. Right? Um, so Kedam means from before or earlier times. Um, uh, right, exactly. So Mikadam could be uh, to the east or it could be from earlier. Um, okay. Uh, keep going, Vicky. I just want to pause there. Those who you, those of you who were with us last year when we were studying Midrashim about the creation of the world, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about um, the uh, midrashic uh, imagination about whether there were things that were created uh, before God created the world. Maybe even that there were things that were created uh, before God came into being. 
Um, so um, uh, that's a whole other conversation for another time. Uh, but, but here it's referring back to those previous conversations um, about, you know, uh, whether, whether, you know, various things, Torah, for example, is, is understood by the rabbis to have been created before the world was created and maybe even used as a blueprint for God in creating the world. And so it, it's implied in some of those other, it may actually state explicitly elsewhere that the, the garden was created before the creation of the world. Uh, here in truth, it was created only before the creation of Adam, the first man. Keep going, Vicki. Um, well, oh, sorry, I thought you had already read that, yeah. <laughs> that is written for God is my king from before now working salvations in the midst of the earth apropos of this verse Adam exclaimed come and see the benevolent worker i.e. God for the holy one blessed is he prepared my reward even before I rose from the earth to labor in his commandments So what do we learn here? With the, you know, God, he created the, the garden for Adam, so he had to create Adam first and then Adam. Uh, but he doesn't create Adam first. He creates the garden before Adam. The garden, the garden mm-hmm. of Adam. Right. First. right. But then, even when he, he had already the garden of Eden, but then he decided to he had already the idea of creating Adam. Right. But he was looking for a place for Adam to live. Right. So he, cho- he chose a place in Eden mm-hmm. where he was going to make a special place for Adam. Good. Okay. So, so, so this says two things. One, that God intended to create Adam long before uh, God actually created Adam. And, uh, and God uh, uh, created the garden uh, before creating Adam with the intention that this would be the place where Adam would come and live. So there are a couple of questions that I have about that. The first is, um, uh, what's the significance of that? That, uh, that, that God created the, the dwelling place first before Adam was created. The second question I have is, you know, we all know how the Garden of Eden story turns out. Um, did God know uh, how the Garden of Eden story was going to turn out? And, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, that adds, I think, a, a different layer of complexity to the, the assumption that God created, or the argument that God created the, the Garden first in order to put Adam there to put Adam there in order to commit the transgression and then in order to get kicked out of the garden. Um, so I just, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Do think, for example, why did he create a special place for Adam inside the garden? He didn't want him to live in Eden. I mean, so he had already Eden. And then he chose a place in Eden for right. Adam. And presumably he had the whole world. I mean, God could have put him in, you know, Timbuktu or, 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 yeah, or why Florida. Did he, why did he put him He's a great Place inside the garden. Mm-hmm. Right. So not not only in Eden, but in this special garden. Right. Yeah. What's the significance of that? Yeah. Why? Because well, part of me wonders, like, was Adam just too much to stay? Like, you need to have a place to put this creature that you created. So, kind of like, um, like if you're, you know, like, I don't know, like if you're trying to like do something that could be 
potentially really dangerous, you're going to make sure you've contained it first, right? Like, <laughs> like if you're going to split atoms or something, you're going to just go randomly saying, hey, I think I'll try this at my dining room table, right? Like a horse in a pasture. <laughs> you know, maybe if God said, because God, if God intended from the beginning that there would be free will, so hence entering this kind of like, I'm not going to have full control here, like, you know. Like, is there a sense of uncertainty that God doesn't know what's going to happen once God gives free will to this thing and then lets it loose? And, you know, so you contain it before you know what, so you can kind of get a sense of what happens. Yeah, but what's interesting, I mean, so that's, that's, that's really mind-blowing. Um, uh, and, 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 like, really, you know, but, but what's strange about it is that, okay, so does that mean the experiment went right or wrong? You know, like, God turns Adam loose out of the garden after... Uh, uh, Adam eats from the tree of knowledge. Um, so, like, I would think that God would want to contain Adam more after that uh, uh, incident rather than turn him loose all over the face of the whole earth. It was like it's. You want to protect the, the, not the tree of life so, he, so that mortality enters the picture. Is that the stopgap? Is like that the safety valve? Like as long as as long as Adam is not immortal. But didn't he, maybe God he already knew what what kind of material what kind of material he was using for making Adam? It was already perfect. It was, it was already perfect. Mm-hmm. For example, that's you know when I think about Hashem and Elo, Elohim, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know the, the two attributes of God in this case is Hashem <coughs> is compassion and Elohim or Elohim is. Justice, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, to me, the, the concept is already there that you know, God, compassion. He knew that He was creating a, a someone who was not perfect, and then He brings Elohim, which is a justice, which means to bring, you know, a, how can I say, he, um, He's just creating the the mechanisms to bring that balance in the life of this mm-hmm. imperfect being. Right. So what you know, so that's that's. That's sort of similar to to a thought that I had about this, which is, uh, you know, um, at least in this in the midrash, right? Adam uh, uh, seems to, you know, seems to see it. If I'm understanding you right, in kind of the opposite way, that this is a this is a really great thing that God has done for me, uh, and that's maybe that's how the the rabbis are seeing it. That that Eden is uh, is is a reward, or the garden is a reward for for Adam, you know, for. Uh, for good behavior that he hasn't yet proven, right? And that, um, and that God, so what, in other words, like this underscores actually the, the freedom of Adam in the story, right? Adam actually could have chosen um, to, to stay in the garden or not stay in the garden. Adam made a choice not to stay in the garden, uh, but God, uh, God um, operates under the assumption that given the choice, Adam will choose the good and earn the right to remain in the garden. But that's not what Adam chooses. God set him up. Ooh. (laughs) I mean, he put the serpent in the garden, too. Uh Uh-huh. And God is an all-seeing, all-knowing God, right? So he had to know what was going to happen. Well, okay, there's... there's, uh, You you may be right about the serpent thing, you know? Um, But I'm not positive that the rabbis in the Midrash assumed that God was all-seeing and all-knowing. I think that that's a uh, an assumption of, uh, of of Greek philosophy that the rabbis may not have always shared, uh, and the Torah reading it 
carefully doesn't seem to, uh, to, to share that, right? So, you know, for, for instance, you know, uh, after Adam and uh, Eve eat of the fruit uh, of the tree of knowledge, um, uh, God says, where are you? Right now, it could be a rhetorical question, right? But if you you know assume that uh, that that God, you know, another equally logical way of looking at that is God literally doesn't know where they are, and so that you know is God all seeing and all knowing? I don't know. Um, uh, so anyway, but the but the point about the serpent is is well taken. You know, um, you know, Adam's the way Adam views being in the garden is like, well, this is great. You know, the way God views it is this is a test, right? Uh, and one that I'm that I'm assuming that you're going to fail. That's what that's what you're saying. Why would God? Yeah. Why would God want Adam to fail? Uh huh. I'm going to put the serpent there and see how you react to that. And, and he reacted. By, by the way, uh, the the notion of God testing a person uh, undercuts an argument about God being all knowing. Because presumably an all-knowing God would not need to test somebody to determine the outcome of the test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what I was thinking is the serpent, um, I mean, God sort of gets God's self trapped in this because um, God told Adam one thing, and then, but it wasn't, it, the serpent was right. It wouldn't, it, it would, didn't kill them. It didn't, like, it, it wasn't death. It was knowledge, and that and that was true. And maybe God needed to save himself a lot of time and not, and have told the truth about what it was and why it was a bad idea. Like I don't know. Like God sort of like does what we do with kids, right? We say, if you touch this, it'll blow up, right? Like, or if you have a little kid, you'll be like, terrible things will happen, the zombie apocalypse and everything else. <laughs> we all fully well know. I just want to say for the record, I've never threatened my kids with the zombie apocalypse, but now I might. <laughs> I Life could be like mm-hmm. he wanted to him to experience this 
wonderful garden and in the garden was God. And then, so, so that once he was out of the garden, he, he would have known what he lost. I mean, if you never have experienced, you know, the best, how would you even know that you want the best? I mean, hmm. wouldn't he want man to always long to, you know, be back in the garden, so to speak, or, you know, to, hmm. to be back in relationship, you know, close relationship with God? Yeah. So by then, for example, God, um, he, Adam, he, had, he had already had a free will. Uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming that, but uh, it, it, it seems to be the case, yeah. Because, I mean, he wasn't like an angel. Angels, they don't, they don't, they don't see because they don't have body. Right. But Adam had a body. Right. He had needs. Right. And, and I don't know, I think, I don't think that God was setting up Adam for, you know, for failure. But uh, he gave him, the, as you said, he gave him the... the um, I mean, enough common sense to choose between, <coughs> but he wanted to try because he, I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen after that. Right. So what's, you know, what's interesting about it is, you know, just like to kind of use this language, you know, uh, and I'm, and I'm not sure, I'm just kind of playing with this, um, you know, is, is Adam in the garden, um, an experiment or a test? Um, it feels to me that those are different things. Um, an experiment is generally speaking not for the benefit of the subject of the experiment, but rather for the knowledge of the person doing the experiment. Um, but a test, it feels to me, um, is actually more reciprocal than that, right? So a test, ideally, I would think, should benefit both the tester and the testee, right? The, the, it should benefit the testee uh, because um, it, it, uh, it, it, you know, you, you, you see whether you did well or you failed and, and if you, if you did well, you, you know, A, it means you like know the thing that you're supposed to know. Um, and B, you can see how to do as well in the future. If you don't do well, you, uh, you, you, uh, can understand what it is that you need to learn and you need to know in order to do better in the future. And it's beneficial to the tester uh, because it also it, it teaches the tester, um, have you done an effective job uh, teaching the subject what needs to be taught to him or her? And if they fail the test, then there's obviously more work that you need to do. Um, so, I, you know, I'm thinking about this more as a test of Adam right? and, and having him placed in the garden, you know, as a uh, uh, um, not as an experiment to see what would happen, um, but as a, but as a test to see um, what what Adam is able to do and what God needs to do to teach Adam better. Um, that resonates more with me, um, I think. Um, this notion that that you know I'm gonna gonna um, uh, you know give him the you know set him up for success, um, and you know like see whether or not that works. And if it doesn't work, then there's obviously more work that I need to do with this subject. Okay, so then I have that thought, like if you're a parent, think of creating and you're, and you're pregnant or you're adopting or whatever, you prepare a room right. for that child. You prepare a space, you make sure you have what you need for, for the uniqueness of that child's needs. So if, if Eden's like a nursery, you know. And I, I think there's something for me about the language of test. Maybe it's because I took the Miller's analogy test right before coming here, but you know, <laughs> which I really didn't, you know. Um, don't take standardized tests anymore. Just give it up. But um, 
yeah, like, so we prepare a space, you know, we, we, we make a space for new people or even visitors or when we know someone's coming, we make a space for them and a space that will have the stuff that they need that would, might be different than what we need, you know, than we ourselves would need. That's a little kinder to God. And then maybe if it's a nursery, then God's waiting to see, like, what's going to happen as this creature gets more mature or more, like, how are, what are, are they going to grow? Like that, maybe the, I like the growth as right. opposed to, I don't know, I think I'm just hung up on the word text. Well, so that's, but no, that, and, I, and, I, and I think that's fair, right? So what, what if we thought about it in an altogether different paradigm, which is, you know, this is not, you know, a stage for Adam to be tested or experimented on, but rather, you know, a, um, a nursery, a, a womb, you know, in which he can, uh, you know, grow and develop. Um, you know, I think that that actually plugging it back into the text, um, the text feels to me um, to be kind of, um, pardon the pun, but but really pregnant with that kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, sensual imagery, um, that relational imagery. Um, uh, and so that actually, that kind of works, right? Say, you know, I have this precious creation that, that I, I want to like make the most wonderful setting I possibly can for this person to grow and thrive. Um, uh, now that makes, that, that adds a layer, I think, of complication to the, uh, to the, you know, to the, to the, tree of knowledge story um and maybe we'll you know talk about that a little bit more when when we get there um but uh, but I, I think that that's a that's a beautiful a beautiful image here um that, that what god uh tries to do with with humanity is um create the the most nurturing environment possible and that's yeah, well, it gets worse though <laughs> can I ask something for me yeah. because Adam looks on it as a reward that God has prepared for him that he has this wonderful place the garden to live in and he says um, I rose there to labor in his commandments and then he violates a commandment Right. So uh, there's a few, uh, there's a, I, I think that's a point well taken, you know, and that, that is, you know, it's what everybody says about millennials, right? That like we got too many trophies. Uh, and so like th- then we think we're entitled to everything, you know, in life uh, and it makes us horrible people. Um, but, you know, so the, the argument is, right? What? Thank you, thank you. It's mostly boomers who say that. And I was like, well, you guys made us, so what does that say about you? Anyway, um, but, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, but, you know, that's, that, you know, like, you know, like, you know, um, basically, you know, I spoiled you uh, into being a terrible person, right? Um, now, that's, you know, reading it carefully, I, I don't know if that's exactly what Adam is saying here. You know, Adam is saying here that, that he recognizes that the proper response to the privilege he's been given is to work for it. Um, you know, which is, uh, which, which I think actually is part of the millennial ethos personally. But, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, so you know, listen. But but you're right that there, that bears a certain irony with the fact that that Adam at least seems to uh, have uh, violated and rejected the first commandment that he is given. Um, yeah. Um, and then that goes to the it's all a trick, which 
is really true. Like Gen X and when millennials were so not in good shape. And like when I'm 80 and poor, that's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be homeless and 80 and hungry. Like that's what's gonna happen to me because I will not have no retirement. But anyway, moving on from my personal tragic life story. <laughs> um, again, if you go back to that, um, that God didn't give Adam all that Adam really needed to know to be able to pass the test because made this hyperbole or it's kind of like the work hard, go to school, play by the rules and it'll all work out. Well, if it isn't evident to everyone right now, going to school, working hard and the guarantee that it will all work out is a fairy tale. Like that is not what happens. That is not how it works. And so, it's not how it always works. It sometimes works. For a privileged few, sure. <laughs> what does it mean? Okay, to... but I mean, it's like, but the, the, the corollary being that if you haven't succeeded, then it's your fault that you haven't succeeded. So we have to ask did Adam fail or succeed because of, of Adam's failings or because Adam didn't have enough? didn't have the information Adam needed to succeed. Which is a question. I mean, I think that's a little bit like... First of all, what does it mean to work out? You say it'll work out. I, what does I, it mean? I'd, I'd rather not be looking at the future and go, and I'm going to be homeless and hungry when I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> well, and my second question to you is, what is the other thing that Adam would have needed that didn't, he didn't have? Yeah, the ability well, to I mean, see the future. <laughs> Well, that he was down. not exactly a human trait, um, <laughs> but um, it seems so simple that it's a matter of Adam's disobedience. He was told not to eat from the tree. We haven't quite gotten there yet here, right. but we know what's coming up, and don't do it. Yet he did it. Yeah, and then we'd have to know whether it was Adam who tacked on the the dying part. But because we, we, we talk about the human nature. And I mean, and Hashem was already aware that he was making a human person. He wasn't perfect. Right, but did, but did God know yet what human nature was? I guess he did. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the other, the two thoughts I have about this, is, you know, are... Uh, and I don't remember who said this, but, you know, it, it's a sort of a comment on the, like, you know, buy your bootstraps ethos of, you know, like you're going to you know, work hard, put your nose down, uh, do everything that you're supposed to do and you'll and you'll succeed in life. Um, uh, and someone once said that, um, you know, I'm all for uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but it doesn't really work if you got no boots. Um, right. And so here, you know, God gives Adam the boots. Right. And, 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 you know, given all of the raw materials you need, can you uh, uh, thrive and, and, and flourish? Um, on the other hand, to, to Vicky's point before, um, once you start in the Garden of Eden, there's really only one way you can go. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, um, so maybe you know. I don't know if God intentionally did, but but like it, you know, it seems to uh, to be set up. You know, once you grow up and like you know, you're, you're Bill Gates's house, you're Bill Gates's child. You know, like like what? Where do you really have to go in life? You know, uh, from there, everything is a disappointment after that. So, um, uh, so I think that there, there's a, a, a possibly an aspect of that here that. Um, 
uh, that you know, maybe maybe it's not Adam's failure, maybe it's God's failure, right? That uh, that that God wanted to provide everything for you know this creation, uh, and ironically, by doing that, failed him uh, because didn't give him the opportunity to work for on his own behalf, right? And to and to build. Yeah, so I think that there might be um, uh, that that dynamic here too. Uh, any closing thoughts? I, I yeah. Have, well, I have a question. I'm yeah. not actually on this topic, but further back it says in the text it has uh, after Adam was created on the sixth day, and the Garden of Eden does it, it was created. That's the other. Uh, no, it just yeah, it just says Gan Eden. Uh, so in in rabbinic literature, often it's called Gan Eden, not Gan Be Eden, which is the term from Torah. Um, so Gan Eden. Um, more literally translated as Garden of Eden, um, but that's just that's not necessarily making a comment on the the geographical situation. It's just kind of the like popular terminology. Well, I mean, because we had talked about the previously, it said Garden in Eden, yeah. not of Eden. So I was wondering why it would say of Eden. Right. So so you're what? Yeah. What you're noticing is that already by the time of the rabbis, that that kind of way of talking about it had already set in. Um, possibly because it's just easier, like flows off the tongue easier to say Gan Eden than Gan Be Eden. Um, I'm not exactly sure, like, you know, when it's possible that like in, you know, in other places in the Bible where this is referenced, uh, the term Gan Eden is used instead of Gan Be Eden. Um, like the uh, Sarna um, commentary points out that um, there, you know, what the Torah does here is it references a more widely known story, but repurposes it uh, for for you know whatever use the Torah wants to use it for, um, demythologizes it, etc. Um, so it's possible in other uh, instances, other contexts, um, it may have been called the Garden of Eden, right? And so what the Torah wanted to uh, we wanted to point something else out, you know, by calling it a Garden in Eden, Mikedem. Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna stop there for now, um, unless there are closing observations or thoughts. I was thinking that you know this is one instance of not um, man not moving up to or God being disappointed in, however whichever direction you want to say that. But lots of the early stories <coughs> show that, and and then came the flood to try and correct that. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's all a part of a well, so as as we will see next week, um, uh, the the rabbis at least thought that Abraham was the corrective for Adam, that 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 Adam's failure and expulsion from the garden um, uh, was uh, um, God made up for that, or tried to make up for that by charging Adam by charging Abraham to do what Abraham does. Um, so we'll see that next week, Harry. If you go up to 10,000 feet and look over not just Genesis, but future books as well, it seems to me that one can say that at every, there were frequent junctures in time when the Israelites, uh, disappointed God, and yet he stuck with them. 
which is another way of saying to me, it's almost as if God knew from the very beginning of this whole saga that what he was creating would be a mess. Uh, in essence, uh, a wayward child who would challenge him at every step of the way. And so instead of putting him in Eden, he put him in this garden. Mm -hmm. um, because if, if, he was, if he thought it was a, a wayward child that he could not, um, for lack of another word, live with, phrase, um, he wouldn't have stuck with everybody. He wouldn't have kept it going. So to me, that's inconsistent. So just a, just a thought. So, yeah. I don't see where God can be sovereign and not have foreknowledge. So he knows what's going to happen, but that doesn't necessarily, it's not incompatible with a free will. He can still create an autonomous free will in a human being to do or not to do as that being decides, but still know what the person's going to do. For example, on, on this Valentine's Day, I can give my wife a dish of Godiva chocolates. I can also give her a dish of liver with onions, and I'll tell you which one she'll take. <laughs> uh, but I'm not, I'm not making her take. I, I hope she takes the Godiva chocolates because I gave them to her. But well, no. So, I'm so what you're no, what you're but what you're saying there is you could predict which one she's going to take, but you don't know which one she's going right. to take. Right. It's yeah, not, it's not a perfect analogy. right, right. So, so right. If you if if you knew if if you knew with one hundred percent certainty which one she would take before she takes it, then she doesn't actually have free will. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. So that's that, not a perfect analogy. Right. But no, God, but but but, but no, but if God knows, then we don't have free will, right? If God knows with one hundred percent certainty, no, that's, I, that's where I disagree. <laughs> okay, but I, what I'm saying is that that all you really have is the. He's going to be disappointed, and let's well, anyway. well, first of all, first of all, the notion that God is disappointed is a direct argument against God having foreknowledge. Right. Nothing that has foreknowledge can be disappointed. Um, so if you, you know, if you know how it's going to turn out, it's impossible to be disappointed about how it's going to turn I, out. I don't believe he's ever disappointed. <laughs> okay, fine. I, I mean, the, the meaning of that word. I don't think he's. Well, I mean, the, I don't know. He's ang he's angered. Well, actually, the in in the in the in the flood story, uh, it says about God that he that he uh, regretted having created human beings. Right? Uh, he. Um, I mean, that sounds like disappointment to me. I mean, uh, uh, God is angry at human beings, and you know, other so. In other words, I. He's angry at Moses. Um, so to, this is a bigger and deeper conversation, um, but it, uh, it, all of that suggests to me that it, I, I'm not necessarily saying that God doesn't know everything. I'm just saying that I don't think that the Bible thinks God knows everything um, because it does not seem to be what plays out in the pages of the Bible. Uh, and um, uh, the other thing I'll say, just to Harry's point, is... Those of us who have kids uh, uh, know that when we have children, they are going to be imperfect and uh, frustrate and even disappoint us in myriad different ways. And yet, we have children anyway. Um, be, why? Because of love. Um, so I think that that's another aspect of looking at it here, that, that God might know 
that this creation is going to be imperfect and, uh, and, and, and a failure and disappointment um, might be capable of also really extraordinary things. Um, uh, things that would make God very proud, right? But, uh, uh, but God says, you know, regardless of what the risks are and, and recognizing all the imperfections, um, I'm going to create this thing anyway, and I'm going to give uh, this thing everything they possibly could need to succeed because I care about them. You know, so I, I, I'm going to put them in the, I'm going to put, give them the best schools, the nicest nursery, right? I think we agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Ah, so what's interesting? So, so what's so so I'm not, yeah. So I'm not sure that it's a at least the 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 way the rabbis are are conceiving this that it was designed as a as a permanent punishment. Um, that you know Abraham seems like a corrective to what happens in the Garden of Eden. The temple seems like a corrective to what happens in the Garden of Eden. Like, in other words, there were opportunities for Eden to be restored that, that, is, that are given to human beings um, if we embrace those opportunities. Um, you know, I think that that's the sort of messianic trajectory of the Jewish tradition, is that, that, that we believe that we have the capacity to, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, restore this you know, beautiful garden and to, and to return there. Um, you know, each of us may not make it, right? but the sweep of history will lead us there, and we have the obligation to play a part in that. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that that's what the, the rabbis are saying here in the Midrash, but I think that it's a, you know, if we're, if, when we kind of look at the scope of, of how they interpret the story, tying it, you know, connecting it to the Abraham story, connecting it to the temple, um, there's, there feels to me a, a good argument that can be made.